All right. Um, if you guys want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 3.16. 1 Corinthians 3.16. As you guys turn, I'm going to open us in prayer. Lord, we just thank you this morning, Lord, for the opportunity to come together to call upon your name and, and sing songs of worship to you. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. Lord, thank you that you speak to us through your word. And Lord, we pray this morning that your word would, would, would do just that, just like you promised, that your word would speak to us and change us and convict us, bring life. And Lord, so we ask for your um, gift of understanding your word this morning. We ask that you give us clear thought. Lord, help us to treasure the things that you've given us. Lord, help me to articulate, Lord, your goodness and faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to try to move this a little bit here because I'm going to trip over and everyone's going to laugh at me. I'm going to act over the water too. Okay. Last week we began to talk and we opened our Holy Spirit series talking about who the Holy Spirit is. And sometimes we can begin to talk about the Holy Spirit and we have this understanding of the Holy Spirit that it is a like force out of Star Wars, like this kind of impersonal thing that we can tap into to, to get some stuff or to have some cool stuff happen or whatever it may be. And so we looked at what the Word of God said about the Holy Spirit. And particularly, we looked at the Holy Spirit being the Spirit of God that Jesus and God give to us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. Something happens. God says, I will come and be with you. I'm sending you my Holy Spirit. So we looked at this Holy Spirit being the very Spirit of God filling our lives. It's not just something out there. But more than that, it's, it is that, but it's also God's presence in our lives. And today we're going to look at what that looks like to have God's presence in our lives. And so when my dad... When my dad went into surgery a few years back, he had cancer. Um, he's been cancer-free for a number of years now. But when he went into surgery at the University of Illinois, Chicago, um, or it was at the University of Chicago, I can't remember which one it was. But it was either one of the two places. But we, he went into surgery one morning, and the whole family shows up to wait in the, in the waiting room for this, these, this hours and hours long procedure that they're going to do to take the cancer out of my dad's body. And for us, it was the fact that pre our presence there for us was important. And for my dad as well. And we didn't come, we didn't bring anything to the table. We didn't bring any help to the surgeons, to the surgical staff. We weren't giving pointers and tips. And it wasn't like we showed up with some kind of like something to bring to offer to the, the surgery or anything. If anything, the surgeon would call every couple of hours to let us know how things are going, what he's doing next. If anything, we were a distraction to the guy, okay? But it was this. It was presence was important. So although we didn't have direct contact with my dad, he was on this operating table or anything like that, the fact that we were there, the fact that he knew that we were there, the fact that we were present with him was important. And so I think about why is that important to us? We think about someone graduating from high school, you know, the, the big celebration, and you're not going to miss that for all the world if that's your kid. 
I mean, they're just getting a diploma. It's not like you add anything to the diploma or anything like that to their high school experience that they've just had. But your presence is important. Someone gets sick. So we go visit them in the hospital. Whether they're even, they even know we're there or not, presence is important. So I think, why is presence important? Why would this be important? Why is it important that we go sit in the waiting room, waiting for my dad to get out of surgery? Just a couple of thoughts. There's comfort. You don't feel alone. There's a reassurance of love and commitment for one another. So you know what? No matter what you're going through, I'm going to be there for you. No matter what you experience, no matter what is happening in your life, I'm going to be there for you. I will always be there for you. There is a peace knowing that those who you love are close by. And I think the same thing for us when we begin to talk about the Holy Spirit, God's presence in our lives, some of these things, some of these same things come into play. God, does, God didn't show up in Jesus Christ to earth, offer salvation, and then take off and leave us just to kind of figure things out on our own. He says, no, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. It's going to dwell inside of you. My presence will be with you. Now let's look at 1 Corinthians 3.16. Because the Apostle Paul begins to speak to the church about what that looks like for individual believers. And this morning what we are going to do is look at, well, what does this look like in the first church? In the first century church, what did God's presence look like for them? Then what does Paul say about that for us? So 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. So we want to look at what does this mean that God's spirit, that we are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in us. This has massive significance. But we want to unpack and say, okay, God, what does this mean for us today? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at what the first church experienced in Acts 10. So if you want to turn with me to Acts 10, we're going to, we're going to turn back a few pages to the book of Acts, the 10th chapter. They've already had the, the, the Pentecostal experience. The tongues of fire come down upon the believers. They've, they've went out and witnessed and experienced the great moves of the Lord. The church is growing. People are being saved. People are being healed. People are being raised from the dead. So here we have in Acts 10 a story about the Apostle Peter. And here Peter is. He goes to a, a guy's house in the town of, of, of Joppa. And he is there and he's getting ready to eat and he's hungry. So he goes up. So as they're preparing the food, he goes up on the, the roof of the house and he sees a vision. He sees a vision from the Lord. And in this vision, a number of things happen, but what, what happens is, is the Lord tells the apostle Peter, says, some guys are going to show up from this guy named Cornelius. And I want you to go with them to Cornelius's house. And that's all he told me. He didn't tell him why he had to go to Cornelius's house. He didn't tell him what was going to happen at Cornelius's house. He just said, go with these guys to Cornelius's house. Now we read in, in verse 23, chapter 10, verse 23, so 
these guys do in fact show up shortly after that and say, Peter, would you please come with us to Cornelius' house? And this is what Peter did. So he invited them to be his guests. This is Cornelius. The next day he rose and went with them and some of the brothers from Joppa to accompany him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone other from any other nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now I ask, why then have you sent for me? So then in the next verses, Cornelius comes to tell Peter that he had a vision from the Lord as well. An angel came and visited him. And this angel said, look, you need to get Peter to come over to your house and tell you some things. So that's exactly what he did. So the story picks back up then on verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, and we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, in Jesus Christ, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Wouldn't we ask Peter then to remain for some days if that was us, right? Peter, why don't you stay a little bit longer? This is really cool. But I want to make a couple observations about this, this text here. Peter shows up at Cornelius' house not knowing what he was supposed to do. 
God had not said, you need to proclaim the gospel. You need to do these things. You need to baptize them because, you know, he didn't tell them any of those things. Peter is just responding to the invitation of the Lord to walk out in obedience. said, go with these guys. Peter said, okay, I'll do it. Showed up. And he just began to give a simple gospel message. This message that Jesus Christ is the way of salvation. That when we believe in Jesus Christ, just like the word of God says that he died for our sins, that Jesus Christ rose on the third day victorious over death and sin, that we receive new life and forgiveness. And he just begins to to simply spell this out. And in verse 44, something amazing happens. In verse 44, it says, while Peter was still saying these things, he's in the middle of his conversation. He's in the middle of just proclaiming to them the simple message of the gospel. He says, well, Peter was still saying these things. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The Holy Spirit broke in and interrupted his message. The Holy Spirit broke in at that moment. I think in my life, how many times I've been so busy doing things, doing whether it be good things or things I'm supposed to do or whatever it is, I've been so busy and I've missed God breaking into my life and challenging me and changing me. And God says, go with these men. Take that phone call. Tell this person about me. And I've been too busy. So I don't have time for that. I've got other things to do. I've got more important things to do. You've given me other things to do too, so I'm gonna, I got, I've got to do these things. I've got to attend to the church affairs. I've got to attend to my family affairs. I've got to attend to affairs wherever it may be. And I completely miss what God is doing. And here Peter, in the middle of, of, his, of his day, waiting for his food, hears the word of the Lord, walks in obedience, and the Holy Spirit breaks in. And so often I can do that with, with my own life, and not only in my own life, but here at church. I think, I can think, well, I'm not done. You know, Peter could have been preaching this message and getting ready to, to conclude, and the Holy Spirit breaks in and says, wait, hold on, hold on, guys. I'm not, I'm, I've got a really good closing to my message. I've got a really good point I want to make at the end. So if you guys would hold off on the, on the tongues and extolling the Lord till I get done finishing my message, and then we can kind of do that stuff, okay? It seems almost ridiculous, but I do that all the time. You know, as, as, as we're singing worship songs, I'm looking at my watch. Okay, I don't want to go too late. And I know we've got to end at 1030. And, you know, and I feel like, okay, we need to cut things short. And so I feel like the Lord, no, no, no. John, you need to wait for me. If I'm in the middle of doing something, if I'm speaking to someone, this is not about you about you being on time or you finishing right at 1030 on the dot or whatever, whatever time it is. If it's not church, it's something else. So you need to be patient and wait on me because I've got things to do. And are we willing to watch what God is doing and then change our plans accordingly to follow what God is doing? That's the question. Are we willing to change our plans? Are we willing to see what the Lord is doing around us to hear his voice to feel that, that subtle urge to, to give or to invite or to, to welcome or to encourage and say, yes, I will do that. I could be in the middle of doing a million things. But God, when you show up and you give me an instruction, 
I'm going to obey it no matter what happens. Now, that's just a side note because we're going to look at what, what the effect of this is. We're going to turn to chapter 11 because what we get in chapter 11 is Peter's summary of what just happened with those believers. So we kind of get like the short recap of that in verse 11. So Peter goes to these, these Gentile believers where at the time, like he says, the, the Jewish people were not even allowed to enter into the Gentile home or to eat with the Gentiles. And that was a very bad thing for them to do. It was considered unclean. That's why Peter in, in chapter 10 is completely insulting. He's like, you know, it's not good for me to, to go where, where it's called common or, or just usual, you know. Basically saying, hey, I shouldn't be in here with you guys because you guys are common and unclean. Insults them. But what we get here in chapter 11 is Peter goes back then to the believers in Jerusalem. And with the believers in Jerusalem, Peter begins to tell them what happened. Because they say, Peter, we heard that you went to some unclean people's homes. Spent some time with them, probably ate with them and hung out with them. What's the deal? That's not right. And so, and so Peter begins to tell them, okay, I saw this vision. I felt God told me to be in, you know, to go with them to their house. Cornelius had the same thing happen. So I came to this house, began to share the gospel, tell them about Jesus Christ. And then in verses 15 through 18, we get his brief summary of what happened after he began to tell them. Okay. So in verse 15, He says this, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I or Who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Nobody was able to refute the fact that the Holy Spirit was doing something miraculous and powerful in the midst at Cornelius' home. And so for Peter, as he begins to relay the experience that they had at Cornelius' house, he makes this conclusion that the Holy Spirit was the means of authenticating the salvation of the believers. The Holy Spirit was the means of saying, hey, these guys gave their lives to the Lord because it was evidenced by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we saw an immediate change because the Holy Spirit showed up. And for us, that was the evidence that a life had been changed that they had believed in Jesus Christ. Something had changed. Their lives were different. No one could explain it any other way. This wasn't like Peter saying, you know what? I gave such a smooth presentation. Man, that conclusion I had was nailed it. That prayer I had to open the whole service up, man, they were on their hands and knees before I even started preaching. And so obviously this was going to happen. He couldn't say that at all. He said, no, no, no. I began to tell a simple message. The Holy Spirit fell. And it was an evidence that God had showed up, that God had changed their lives, and that they were never going to be the same again. And the result, and I want you guys to notice this, the result in Acts, you don't have to turn back, but Acts 10.46, the result was this, for, for Cornelius' home, the result in Acts 10.46 was this, that the believers, as they began to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, the, the result was this, they began extolling God. 
They begin extolling the Lord, glorifying God, giving praise to the Lord. Now, when we look at Acts eleven eighteen, people weren't talking about Cornelius' ability to discern the word of the Lord, to, to actually take the step of faith, to send some men out to, to Joppa to, to get Peter back. He, they weren't talking about Cornelius's. It's unbelievable that Cornelius you know, saw a vision. He's a Gentile, whatever it was, visited by an angel. They weren't talking about those things. But in Acts eleven eighteen, this is the effect that the Holy Spirit had because they had fell upon Cornelius, because their lives had been changed, because they began extolling the Lord. The effect for the other believers in Acts eleven eighteen was this. And they heard these things. They fell silent. And they glorified God. How do we know it was, it was legitimate? It was this, that people began to glorify God. That when people heard about the, the way that the Holy Spirit had fell upon them and the way the salvation came to Cornelius' house, the effect not only on Cornelius' house, but on the believers who then heard about that was glorifying God. Was glorifying God, that God was glorified. That people were extolling the Lord. That people couldn't explain it any other way except this was a work of the Lord. Now we're going to look at what does God's presence in us look like today? So we go back to 1 Corinthians 3.16. 1 Corinthians 3.16, like we read in the beginning, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, for us to understand the weight of what Paul was talking about, this, this God's temple, that God's Spirit dwells in you, we have to have a little bit of an understanding of what the temple meant to Paul. When Paul says that you are God's temple, we, kind of, we may have an idea today of what it, maybe what a temple is. It's, it's some like you know, shrine, some church. You know, that, to us, is maybe our understanding of temple. But when Paul was talking to the believers in the first century, they, have, they had a little bit different idea of what a temple was. So I want to go back to really look at what was the temple in the Old Testament. And when Paul said, you are the temple of the Lord, what does that mean for us today? Because he's bringing, we need to understand what he's talking about when he says, you are the temple. So the temple in the Old Testament was something that was, was God's chosen place to put his presence. In all the earth... God chose one specific place that he said, I will put my presence on the earth in this place. It's in the temple. And it's completely unique to any other place in the world. There's no other place that could say, hey, we've got the temple of Almighty God in our midst, just like you do. There was only one. There was one place that God had chosen to put his name in his presence. The temple was, was God's centerpiece of his presence on the earth. And there was great concern for the people of God, the Israelites. There was great concern for the temple. From the very beginning, when God, when God gave them the layout of the temple, there was careful work to, to, to build this temple for the Lord. When Israel was, was banished out of their, their country because of disobedience to the Lord, when they came back, there was great concern and great care to rebuild the temple. It was, it was something that was on their hearts all the time. It was, it was of, of most importance to them, this concern and care for building and rebuilding the temple. 
And I want to give us just a glimpse of what, what this looked like in 1 Kings. If you want to turn back to the Old Testament of 1 Kings. You can open your Bible in half and turn back about 100 pages. Read in 1 Kings. 1 Kings 8. This is what happened when they first when they first dedicated the temple in Israel. So Solomon had built this massive temple for the Lord, just like the Lord had wanted him to do. The Lord gave him special, careful instruction how this should look. And Solomon began to build the temple, and he finished the temple. He's dedicating it to the Lord. And so this is what we read in chapter eight, verses ten through eleven. And when the priest had came out of the holy place, out of the inner place of the, of, of the temple, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So we have this, this great dedication, this huge, magnificent temple built to the Lord in and as, as they're dedicating this temple, as the priests are doing their, their, their duties and, and caring for the temple and offering sacrifices to the Lord, God shows up in a powerful way. God shows up in such a powerful way that the priests had to get out of the temple. It would be like if we were sitting here in church and all of a sudden a cloud filled this place and we don't know, is this fire? What's going on here? We'd be scrambling out of this place. People are running out the stairs, throwing stuff through windows. It'd just be chaos, Okay. Here in the temple, the priests are in the middle of, of doing their priestly duties. And the Lord shows up in power and in a cloud. And it had such an effect on them. They couldn't even, they had to stop what they were doing and get out of the temple. Because God had showed up. And when God showed up, nobody went home from that temple that day. The people who are watching, seeing this cloud, cloud ascend on the temple and or a cloud descend on the temple, and the people run out of the place. No one left saying, oh, wow, the, the priest must have been doing such a good job that this cloud came down. This, these priests were playing these harps so well or lighting this incense so, so well that this cloud showed up. All attention was on the Lord. People left saying, God showed up today at the temple. When they went home that day, they, they talked to their kids or their husband or wife, said, you know what, you won't believe what happened today. The Lord showed up in a cloud and everyone had to stop doing what they were doing and the glory of the Lord filled this temple. It was a powerful demonstration of God's presence in their midst. And now, in 1 Corinthians 3.16, the Apostle Paul says that Almighty God, the Sovereign Lord, his chosen dwelling place is no longer in a country, in a, in a state, in a, in a temple, in, a, in a, a certain location. He said it's in you. You are God's dwelling place. You are the dwelling place of the Lord. God has put his spirit and his presence inside of us as believers. We put our faith and believe in the message of Jesus Christ. And not just give mental assent, oh, okay, I know that, that probably happened. But we believe it and say, this affects me. That was my sin that put Christ on the cross. He died for my sin. 
And when he rose again, I am forgiven of my sin. He says, I put my spirit inside of you that you are now the dwelling place of the Lord. It's not in some temple somewhere. It is in you. You are that temple. You are the place of God's chosen dwelling. And I read that and think, should our lives not look completely different from those around us who do not know Christ, who are not filled with his presence? That's the challenge for me. I read that and think, if this is true, if that same God who filled that temple back in 1 Kings, if that same God that filled that temple and was in such a powerful, powerful demonstration that people left saying it could only be the work of the Lord, if the same spirit that fell upon the believers in Cornelius' home and they left and said it could only be the work of the Lord that that happened, there was things going on in that home that could only be described by the work of Almighty God filling them, empowering them, enabling them to do those things. And now the Apostle Paul says, that same Spirit now dwells inside of us. You are the dwelling place of the Lord. Should our lives now look radically different from those around us? We are that dwelling place. We are the, we are the place where God's chosen to put His presence. I love the example that Francis Chan uses in his book, The Forgotten God. If you have not gotten that book, you need to get that book. There's an excellent supplement to our reading. But he uses this example in the book, and I love this example. He said, if I came to you one day, and we had an intramural basketball game this, later this afternoon, and it's the 30 and over rec league, which I would be a part of, and it's for all the slow guys who can't jump anymore and run. And uh, I came to you and said, you know what? We're on the same team together, but you wouldn't believe what happened to me last night. Almighty God showed up in my bedroom last night and said, I'm going to fill you to play basketball tomorrow like you've never played basketball before. Man, I'm going to fill you, and you're going to go out in that court tomorrow, and you're going to do things you've never even thought possible to do. Now, I'm confiding in you and telling you, hey, look, I'm, I'm being serious. This really did happen, okay? You have to believe me. Almighty God filled me last night to play basketball today. So just give me the ball, okay? <laughs> Basically, pass me the ball every time, okay? Now, we go out into the court later that day, and... I am just pulling up, you know, I'm shooting air balls. I'm like, got a pulled hamstring. I can't run down the court. I'm just, you know, you would look at me like, you are crazy. Man, you're out of your mind. That did not happen to you last night. You were having a, man, that was that burrito you ate last night. It wasn't, wasn't God showing up in your room. What are you talking about? Here's the thing. But if I did go out there, and I'm dunking over three or four people at a time, and I'm hitting half-court shots, and I'm just you know, doing things that you never dreamed possible for me to be able to do or anyone else really be able to do, you would look at me and say, hey, something's different about you. What you were saying last night, you weren't just telling me a bunch of lies. It wasn't that burrito you ate last night. You really meant what you said when you said God showed up because you are, your life looks completely different on the court. You are amazing. You are awesome. This is like work of the Lord in you. Now, how much more so should our lives be when we tell someone, you know what, Almighty God has filled me to live out my life in obedience to Him. Our lives should look radically different. Nobody should come and say, are you, are you sure? Is that what you really mean? I don't know if that's what, uh, I don't know if you understand that verse right. Or I don't know, I don't really get what you're saying because what you're saying and what the way that you live your life is two totally different things. 
And so our lives should match up with the very thing that we say, we believe this. When the Apostle Paul writes this, I say, yes, Lord, I believe that. Now, in case you're like, oh, man, this is so discouraging. As I was beginning to reflect on what the Lord has done in this church over the past few months, I just was so grateful for what God has done. You know, we, in the beginning of May, we went to the people of Living Word and the people of Cross Point Churches and said, look, if you would please pray and ask the Lord if, if, if you feel like the Lord's moving you to go on a church plant in Highland with John and Michelle Hamstra, be a part of, of planning that church, starting that work, would you please let us know by the end of May if that's something that you want to do? And so May came, May went at the end of May. We went and said, okay, what has God done? Who has God moved? Whose hearts has God moved to, to do this church plant? We had like six people, okay? Two of those were my parents. So, and the other, and the two other ones were me and Michelle. So, I mean, do the math, right? We're like, God, what, what, are, you, what are you telling us here? How's this going to work? I can't plant a church with, with six people. But yet God began to move on people's hearts, begin to challenge people and speak to people and encourage people. That they begin to say, you know what? This is something I want to be a part of. This is what I want to give my life to. It's a harder road. I've chosen a more difficult way. But I feel like the Lord's calling me to do this. And therefore, I'm going to respond in obedience to God and do it. And so we've, I, we've got a, a church planning coach that I, I speak with on a regular basis who's, who's, done multiple, who's been a part of multiple church plants himself and coached hundreds of church planters across the United States for the past 20 years. And he says, usually to get a church plan off the ground, you need at least a year and a half to two years of saying, okay, we need to get this thing started, to actually launching a church. So you got almost two years between deciding that you should do this to actually doing it. We launched a church in about three or four months, okay? We launched a church in three or four months. Now, part of the problem with playing a church is you've got to find a place that you can afford when you don't have any money. There's not a whole lot of places that you want to necessarily meet at for church and have your kids be a part of the children's ministry, like in a warehouse or something or wherever. And so as we begin to pray about, okay, we meet in a gym, we can have children's ministry classrooms in the hallway, we can have it in a cloak closet. You know, We're trying to figure out all the options for us. Where are we going to do this at? Where are we going to have a nursery for the kids to crawl around? Some dirty hall floorways, you know, who knows where we're going to do this. God provided this building for us. And I don't know if you know us or not, but we have a, a generous uh, person at, at, at Living Word Church says, you know what, I want you to be able to use this building for basically the cost of, of the, kind of the maintenance and upkeep of the building. We do pay rent in this place, but it's compared to what it is about once, once, one about one tenth of the cost as it normally would rent this place out. We could no way could we afford this place if we just had to pay the full rent cost of this place. God provided a building for us. Now we talk about what are we going to do for a worship team? How are we going to provide a worship team, a worship leader? Who's that going to be? God moves on the hearts of Adam and, and other people on the worship and say, hey, we'll be a part of this. We start, the worship team is formed. We get, who's in the lead? Life share groups. Life share groups are, are, are started and, and are formed and are, begin to meet. 
And so all these things begin to fall into place because I believe it's the work of the Lord doing these things in our midst. I don't believe it's the work of, of my genius ability to plant a church because to be honest with you, I have no idea what I'm doing. Okay. And so this is only the work of the Lord to do this, that we would have a church and a building and facilities and, and offices and life share groups and children's ministry running and an incredible worship team. That's the work of the Lord to do that within a matter of months and weeks. We're not talking years, talking a few weeks, a few months. God put this whole thing together. And then last week we did this. We said Cross Point Church in Crown Point, a sister church of ours, is planning a church. Or they planted a church three years ago. And they're, they're getting ready and they have an opportunity within a matter of a few weeks to buy a building because the, the buyers need to get out of the, need, need to sell the building and unload the building. And so we've got a phenomenal deal on this building in Crown Point, on the square. Not only do you get the building that the church is in, but you also get the home next to the church that with, with a huge lot and everything for, for, for really peanuts to what it's worth. It's unbelievable. But they had to raise a huge, a huge amount of money to do this. And so when I called... I called John Leitzel, the pastor of the church, and said, look, we're going to take an offering for you at, at Mercy Hill. We want to do this. We want to support the work of the Lord by, for you guys down there. We believe that the, the message of Jesus Christ is going forth in power. We believe that the gospel is being declared. Lives are being changed. We believe that, and we see that. And so we're going to take an offering because we want to support that work, and we want to help you with what we have and give to you. Now, when I first decided to say, hey, we'll take an offering as a church, this is, this is where my faith was, okay? Because we had just taken an offering for Christmas to help support the students at Highland High School to give gifts for those who are, who are in need. And because, you know, we're just looking at the, the normal projection of, of the way offerings have been at Mercy Hill, which has been incredible, I thought, how can we ask someone to, we just gave for Christmas and this, you know, People are giving faithfully every week, giving beyond their means every week. How are we going to ask people to say, okay, now give even more now? So my, I said, you know what? I thought in my mind, maybe we'll get like 600 bucks. I thought 600 bucks would be good. You know, everyone pitch in $15, $20. That to me, I'm like, hey, that's, that's good. That, that, would be, that would be dynamic. So I had that, that number in my mind for a couple of weeks. Then last week, at the beginning of the week, I thought, you know what? Man, what if... What if the Lord did something in our midst? What if the Lord caused us to be stirred and to give sacrificially beyond our own means? I said, what if, Lord, what if you caused us to give? What if, because then I told John Light, so I'm like, I don't know how to have it. We'll give you $5,000. We'll pull it out of all our accounts. And if we don't raise it, we'll, we'll do whatever we have to to get you $5,000. Because we believe, we believe in you that much. Start selling stuff. It doesn't matter. We're gonna we're gonna give you we're gonna give you five thousand dollars. We believe in the ministry that you guys are doing down there. So later that week, I thought, man, what if we didn't have to sell stuff? What if we what if we could stay in this building? Um, I thought, Lord, what if we what if we came to a place where we, we got five thousand in one dollars? What if I was able to call up John Lightsall and call up Cross Point Church and say, the Lord moved on us so much. We didn't just get the five thousand that we said we were gonna give you, but we got more than that. We got, I don't care if it's a 50 cents more, a dollar more. We actually got more than 5000 which is a huge stretch for my faith. And last week we took an offering for Cross Point Church. 
And I cannot believe the generosity of the people in this church. It blows my mind the way that God has caused you to give beyond your means, beyond your resources. He has moved on your heart to give more than you probably ever dreamed. When we talked about playing a church, said God's going to call you to give not only with your service, but your money and your time and everything else. And here we are taking up an offering for a church. Where we don't want necessarily have any kind of tangible benefit of this, of this money. Last week, we took up an offering for $5,361 for Crosspoint. I hear that and think. This was the work of the Lord in our church to give this way. And it was generously. You responded in obedience to the work of the Lord in your life. As God put on your heart to give, whatever little or much in your mind that was, God took that money and we were able to send it down to cross point as an offering, as a gift to say, we believe in what you're doing and we're a, your success and the, the expanse of the kingdom of God. And the message that goes forth isn't just your message, but our message. And we are a part of what's going on down there. And we are a part of, of you. And so what an, what an awesome thing. I think when we talk about the work of the Lord doing things like this, when we think, where is that evident in my life? And I, I see to think, this is an evidence. The fact that you gave so generously was an evidence of God's working in your life, walking in obedience. That's where we see these things. Now, there's, there's a couple different things that would, I think, hinder us from experiencing more of this in our lives. And so, I know it's getting late. I'm, uh, this is my closing. But, there's a couple things that I just wanted to bring to our attention about why do we not see more of this in our lives, okay? Number one, we could just be un- uninformed. We don't know how God works in our lives. We don't know what God's calling us to do. Therefore, how can we be empowered to be radically obedient to the Word of God if we don't necessarily know the Word of God, right? So God says, here's my Word. Live this way. If you walk in this, it's going to cause you to be radically obedient more than you've ever experienced in your life, and you're going to be doing things that you never thought possible because I'm empowering you to do the very things that I've called you to do in my word. Now, if we don't know the word, how can we be obedient to it? So I think the word of God has got to be a foundational basis of our understanding of what it means to follow in obedience to Christ and walk in obedience to the Holy Spirit, which he's calling us to do. So it's the Word of God. We, are, we need to dig into the Word of God. We need to immerse ourselves in the Word of God because that tells us then how we are to live our lives. It's like giving someone the keys to a car and say, go figure out how to drive on the road, have a good day. We'd never do that because we know, hey, you need to know some things. If you're going to follow the laws and not kill yourself and kill others around you, you need to know some laws. You need to know some things. But for us, the Word of God. We also could be apathetic. So maybe we're uninformed, but we could also be apathetic. We know what's in the Word of God, and we've read the Word of God, and we've experienced maybe some sort of, 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 of just, you know, just the love of God and presence of God in our lives, but it's just kind of take it or leave it. You know, yeah, it's good. It's good for some. Hopefully my pastor's doing that, and my life show leader's doing that, and, and my friend at work's doing that, and that's great for them, and that's good for them, but... 
It's just not that important to me. I've heard that before. That's good. So we're unmoved or even obstinate to talking about the things of the Lord like this. Like, eh, Holy Spirit thing, great. See it in Acts. Paul tells us, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We, you know, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But what does that mean for me? So we're, we're apathetic towards that. It doesn't matter much to us. If that is where we are at, then what we need to do to get beyond that is number one is repent. When we see in, in Ephesians or in Galatians talk about be filled with the Holy Spirit, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We see these things, Paul talking about these things, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. How much should that affect our lives? And for us to casually approach and think, ah, what's the big deal? We need the Lord to do a work in us. We need to be radically obedient to the Lord. And to do that, it starts, I believe, if that's where we're at, it starts with repentance. Saying, God, that has not been the case in my life. That has not been the desire of my heart. I've not been desirous of you and you filling me and you strengthening me and you challenging me. Therefore, Lord, I need you to change my heart. And it starts with repentance. And repentance isn't just saying, yeah, I'm wrong. Okay, let's move on. It's, it's change. It's say, okay, Lord, I'm going to do things differently. I'm going to ask for your presence to fill me and empower me. I'm going to read your word to see what you want me to do. I'm going to be sensitive when you break into my life and say, hey, go speak to this person, or here's a phone call that I want you to take and spend some time with this person, telling them about the Lord or encouraging them in the Lord or, or coming to, getting up early to go to church and say, Lord, how would you use me at church this morning to bring an encouragement to someone and be ready to do that? That's hard. It's not easy. And we don't always want to do that. So when that's us, we need to repent. I think lastly then, so we're either uninformed or apathetic or we're too full of ourselves and want the power of God for our own benefit and not that for the, for the church or for the benefit of the people around us. D.L. Moody, a hundred years ago, he wrote this. This is D.L. Moody. I firmly believe that the moment our hearts are emptied of selfishness and ambition and self-seeking and everything that is contrary to God's law, the Holy Spirit will come and fill every corner of our hearts. But if we are full of pride and conceit, ambition and self-seeking, pleasure in the world, there is no room for the Spirit of God. I also believe that, that many a man is praying to, to God to fill him when he is full already of something else. Before we pray that God would fill us, I believe we ought to pray that he would empty us. There must be an emptying before there can be a filling. And when the heart is turned upside down and everything that is contrary to God is turned out, the spirit will come. I believe that's a good word for us. That we need to, to take heed to D.L. Moody's wisdom to us. Say, Lord, let that be me. If there is things in me contrary to you, if we are full of ourselves. So the filling of the Holy Spirit is God's presence within us as believers. But I want to just close with this. This is Acts 4.29. Because it causes us to walk in obedience to the Lord radically. It's not just 
quiet, nice faith. It, it is a radical obedience to the Lord. This is Acts four twenty nine to thirty one. This is this is what happened. The believers are together praying. The same believers who were earlier were filled with the Holy Spirit when the tongues of fire came upon them at the day of Pentecost. And they begin to they came to a prayer meeting together as a church. They began to pray together. And they just basically just they asked the Lord, would you just help us to be bold and share your word? I mean, that was this long prayer, but they're just kind of reciting to God what he had already done. And then they, at the end they said, Hey, would you um, would you embolden us? And this is what happened. Simple prayer. Four verses twenty nine through thirty one. It says this, and now look, Lord, upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And listen to this, and they continued to speak the word of God. With boldness, they asked the Lord, God, help us to be bold, to proclaim your message, to live lives of obedience, what you had called us to do. Help us to do the very thing you've asked us to do. And they submitted themselves to the Lord and they asked the Lord that. They said, The Lord showed up, and it's cool that the place was shaken, and, and that's awesome. However, it said they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they went out and spoke the word of God with boldness. That's my desire for our church. That we would be the kind of church that would hear the word of God and say, Lord, I want that. I want to declare your word boldly. What I see in the book of Acts, I want in my life. What I see the Apostle Paul describing to the believers today, I want that in my life. I want to go out in boldness and declare who Jesus Christ is with all the power of God filling me and equipping me to do that. So I, where are you at? What do you need to do? I talked about those three different things. And I said, we're probably either in one of these categories or a combination of one of these categories. What do you need to do? What is the Lord putting on your heart to do? What is it that God is, 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 is speaking to you or encouraging you to do through other believers, through his word, through your own quiet time with the Lord that you need to get on and do. And I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask the Lord to help us to, to discern that and ask the Holy Spirit to give us understanding of what that looks like for our lives. And then we're going to close. So, Lord, we just come before you today, and we ask that you would fill us, you would equip us, to go forth and do the very things that you've already called us to do. God, help us to walk in obedience. Help us to walk radical obedience to you. Let our lives be marked by you, so much so that people would see a difference. And God, where we have filled ourselves with ourselves, or we have been apathetic towards you, or we just haven't searched your word and said, Lord, speak to me. What do I need to do? God, I pray that you would change us. God, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would direct us. And Lord, that you would convict us so that we could repent and receive grace to change. In Jesus' name, amen.